what we're continuing in our series this morning titled Co-Creators, Why Work and Rest Matter. And foundational to this series is the, the sort of fundamental idea that your work matters to God and that God ought to matter to your work. And last week, for those who may have missed or those who may have forgotten, which I know is a small percentage of you because you remember everything that we talk about in here each and every week, but we explored sort of two foundational truths that are important for us to, to keep in mind as we consider why our work matters to God and why God ought to matter to our work. The first is that we have been created and called to do good work in the world, is that work isn't something that we just suffer through and endure for a season of our life so that we can merely survive, but work in the theological and biblical sense is a part, is an essential part to who we are as people and what it means to live a good life. You see, we share in God's creative activity and find ourselves faithful to his first command to people when we do good work in the world. But the second sort of foundational idea that we need to have in mind as we think about why our work matters is that good work is done not for ourselves, but for the sake of others. We briefly sort of reflected on how work can quickly turn inwardly and selfishly towards ourselves and be about our achievements and our success and our status and what it is that we gain financially or materially from our work. And yet what the world needs, and one of the reasons I think why I remain a little bit optimistic, not a little bit, why I remain optimistic about these younger generations is that they sort of have sort of grabbed onto this idea that work isn't just about us, it's about the world, is that we do work for the sake of others. And I believe that this younger generation that we're raising up is sort of capturing more and more the idea that this isn't just about the career that can make me the most kind of money, but it's about me living a life that is a gift for the sake of the world. And um, it's possible though, that uh, last week's message and those two ideas uh, could sound a bit naive about how work actually is, right? Um, a bit sort of withdrawn from the realities of work. See, it would have been really easy to walk away from last week feeling affirmed in your work. And I, I certainly hope that this series does that for you, is that I hope that you discover, and one of my hopes is for our church is that we would discover that all work is sacred. All work is sacred, whether you're a teacher or an engineer, a nurse, a custodian, an insurance claims agent, a physician, a small business owner, an entrepreneur, an accountant, and the list goes on and on and on of the different kinds of work that we do, whether you're a mother or a father or a grandfather or grandmother and all the other things that we do, that you would recognize that all of that work is sacred kind of work. It is godly kind of work. You see, the sacredness of work is not confined to religious work. It's not confined to nonprofit work. It's not confined to the service industry. But what we see in the biblical sense is that our work, as it stems from God's nature, as a God who works and creates and orders things, is that all of work, as it creates and orders and serves people, is sacredness regardless of what kind of work it is. It is divine kind of work. But beyond all work being sacred, there's something else that is true about everybody's work that they do in life, is that all work can be discouraging. All work can be discouraging. You see, discouragement for work 
with our work can come, I think, primarily in two different ways. Two of the most common ways that I see work becoming discouraging, at least for myself and others that I talk to, is when our work feels fruitless and when our work feels meaningless. If anybody has had a job or you've served in some sort of capacity in the community, you know that at some point you invest a lot of energy into projects, into people, into something that bears little to no fruit, right? Sometimes you you just work Monday through Friday for weeks and weeks and weeks on end and you seem to not be getting any traction with what it is that you're doing and you get to the end of all of those weeks, all of those hours that you've invested into a place and to a task and you find yourself asking this question, what is the point? What is the point of all of this that I'm doing? When I was doing youth ministry up in Santa Barbara, uh, we, we started this event that we would, we would launch our sort of school year ministry with a big event that we called our fall kickoff. It wasn't unique to our church. Lots of youth groups did it, but kind of recognizing that this is a unique season in our students' lives and in our community, we would do this huge event. And, and the idea was that there were some students who throughout the summer had sort of faded away from connecting with our ministry, and we wanted to reconnect with them. And this was a time in which students were readjusting their schedules and their times, and so they might be more willing and interested to come to church. And so I remember the first year that we did this event, this fall kickoff event, we did what I called a Nerf Wars event, where we bought kids toy guns, not real guns. We bought them toy guns. And we had this event where we did all these Nerf games and activities and the kids had tons of fun. We have a great turnout. And I was like, wow, this is really good. It was like low cost. It was low effort and it was a great turnout. And so the second year that we did our fall kickoff event, I decided that we were going to go all out. Like we're going to go full bore into our fall kickoff. And so we were going to spend what it takes. We were going to do what it takes, whatever energy it would take. We we're going to blow this thing out. We're going to have like 50 kids come to this event. Everybody's going to, you know, know the Lord by the end of it. And yeah, it was going to be awesome. This was the vision that I at least had in my head. And so we did everything we possibly could to entice kids to bring friends, to entice kids to come back to the ministry who had sort of drifted away. We had inflatable jumpers, and we had jousting, and we had Velcro walls, and we had bungee sort of runs and whatever that thing was. We we rented sumo suits so the kids could dress up and smash into each other. We had cotton candy machines, popcorn machines, snow cone machines. We had set up games, and there were prizes awarded to winners of those games. And these were not just like youth group prizes. They were like legitimate, they cost us money kinds of prizes. We promoted and promoted, we invited and invited, we prayed and we prayed, and we wanted to see kids we hadn't seen for a while, and we wanted to see kids that we had never seen before come to our ministry. And when the event arrived, slowly but surely, the only kids who showed up that evening were the ones that we saw every single week. There were no new kids, there were no kids returning, that we hadn't seen for a while. And though we had a ton of fun and though we took great pictures and had a great night together and it was a great time, the entire thing just felt like a failure. We had invested time and resources and finances and energy into an event that was ultimately fruitless for why the event was designed. And there is nothing quite as discouraging as doing fruitless and what feels like meaningless work. It feels like a just waste of your time at the end of the day. And no matter what you do, you know that feeling of discouragement that comes with fruitless work. 
you know what it's like to feel like your work was utterly meaningless. If you're a student, you may know what it's like to study hard for a test, to work uh, tirelessly on a project, and everybody told you, if you just put in the time, if you just put in the effort, you will excel, you will succeed, only to discover that all of that studying has earned you a C, probably the grade you would have gotten without studying at all. If you're an entrepreneur, you know what it's like to try and launch a company or a business only to see it fall by the wayside sooner rather than later. Doctors know this when they've utilized all of their knowledge and all of their study and all of their resources to assist a patient and the patient comes, continues down a path of greater illness, not better health. Teachers know this when they've invested energy into developing a creative lesson to engage students only to find them disinterested or sleeping during their class. Teachers, too, know this when they've invested heavily in a personal way to those who are in their classroom or a a particular student or a group of students only to see those students drop out of school before they graduate. Engineers know this when they've invested months, maybe years, into a project that never goes beyond being a proof of concept. Investors lose money, lawyers lose cases, pastors lose congregants, not mine, farmers lose crops, business owners lose clients. And whatever kind of work that you do, you know that there are times and seasons where the desired result doesn't match the actual results. There are times when your sowing is so much greater than your reaping, and you find yourself asking the question, what is the point of all of this? Am I just wasting my life, spinning my wheels If God has created us and called us to do good work, why is it so hard? How come it can be so discouraging? Fortunately, the Bible doesn't leave us wondering on this particular issue. In fact, it sort of unpacks the complexities and the nuances in a theological way that I think can be helpful for us. And what I want us to see is that it is not through avoiding the difficult aspects and discouraging aspects of our work, but through embracing them, that we actually begin to do the good work that we were called to do. There's a story early in the Bible that people often refer to as the fall. The fall story is the Bible's explanation as to how and why sin is in the world. One of the ways of thinking about sin is that it is the reality of the brokenness that exists in the world. That is, sin is a way of describing that things are not good, that these are things that exist in our world that are not aligned with God's intention and design and good orderliness that he originally created the world to have. And the biblical fall story is popularly known in our culture, right? But if you're unfamiliar, let me catch you up real quick on Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. In the Bible, God creates and orders a world that is good. The climax of God's creative work is in the making of women and men. They bear his image and they bear his likeness in the world. And they are set within the world to care for the world on God's behalf. Or sometimes you'll hear people in the church talk about we are here to steward creation. It's similar to mine and Paige's housing situation, if you think of it like this. We rent a house from someone, they own the property and allow us to make our home there. 
But we care for the house knowing it ultimately belongs to someone else. This is what God has called and created people to do in the world. You are my tenants caring for my good creation. I own and all of this belongs to me and you are working and tending to it as if it were mine. And so Adam and Eve are the first people in the biblical story that are tenants of God's world. And in the lease agreement, they aren't supposed to eat of a particular tree in the world, in this garden in which they've taken up residence. But tell a kid not to eat a cookie, and what is going to happen? Well, they're going to eat the cookie. That's just kind of how it works. I see that with Levi all the time. And so, of course, Adam and Eve, they break their lease agreement. They eat from the tree that they are not supposed to eat from, the forbidden fruit, if you will, And as you would expect in the story, there are a number of consequences that happen as a result of this disobedient action on the part of humanity toward God. But for our focus and for our attention this morning, I want to read what God says to Adam specifically when confronting Adam about this situation. It's recorded here in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. To Adam... The Bible says, God said, because you ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Through painful toil, you will eat food. The ground will produce thorns and thistles for you. That is God's way of saying and the scriptural way of saying that the work Adam and Eve were created and called to do will now be done amongst thorns and thistles. That is, the thorns and thistles of our work are a result of sin. Side note, extra credit. This won't be on the test at the end of service. But it's interesting to note, however, there, there at the beginning of Genesis, the consequences of the fall touch two of the most fundamental, fundamental aspects of what it means to be human. It breaks our love and our work, our love for one another and our work that we're to do in creation. You see, our work now, this side of the fall, is done amongst thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles are the fruitless seasons of our work. They are the long hours that you put in. They are the failed projects. They are the moments you just want to bang your head on your desk because no one seems to quite get what it is that you're doing. They are the endless number of numbless tasks that never quite seem to totally disappear from your plate. And no one's work is beyond the reach of the thorns and thistles of work, except for mine. My work is totally easy all of the time. There's no difficulties. The old saying... Do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That's nice and that's super cute. But I imagine that there isn't a single person who has done something they love who was not faced with difficulty, frustration, and tasks that made them feel like they were fruitlessly laboring for days on end. This is how work functions post-fall. You see, so many in our world and our society have thus tried to avoid the thorns and thistles of work finding work with few inconveniences, good luck on that one, or at the very least avoiding the tasks within their work that are the most difficult, monotonous, and trying. But I want to direct our attention this morning 
to the person of Jesus for consideration about how we might deal with the thorns and thistles of our work. You see, in fact, one of the things that we discover in the biblical story is that Jesus' work, the Son of God himself, faced the thorns and thistles of work that are so much a part of our daily lives. If you read the biographies of Jesus that record his life, ministry, and work in the world, you read a story of a man who knew and lived into his purpose and mission. He did the thing that he loved. He didn't work a day in his life. He was talented, intelligent, focused, and driven. We don't often think of Jesus that way, but this is who Jesus is, to, uh, at least according to the scriptures. And though he had all of the divine qualities we wish we had at our disposal in our work, Jesus' work and mission did not go so swimmingly, if you're familiar with the story. From the very beginning, Jesus' work and mission was met with resistance every turn of the way. The experts in his particular field pushed against him, gossiped about him, tried to tear him down. They challenged his thoughts and his teachings. They, there were times, in fact, early on in his ministry where people tried to throw him off of a cliff because they didn't like the things that he was teaching. But it wasn't just these crowds of people who resisted the work and mission and ministry of Jesus. You see, from the very beginning, his own disciples, the ones who he mentored, were thick-headed and dense. They doubted him. For three years, they were confused by the things that he said. These were the inner circle, the ones to whom he was supposed to hand off this enterprise that we know as the kingdom of God and the church, and they didn't have a clue what the mission of this enterprise was all about. And if you read through Jesus' entire biographies recorded in what we know as the Gospels, you ultimately come to this moment in which his work and his mission ends in his death. Jesus' work ends in his death, hung on a cross. He very literally had thorns and thistles that embraced him at the end because of a result of his work. Once a month, we commemorate this event that we know as the death and resurrection of Jesus by partaking in a meal that we call communion. In some churches, what we call communion is referred to as the Eucharist. The word Eucharist is traditionally translated as thanksgiving. The communion table stirs thanksgiving in those who participate in the meal as we remember the meaning of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's interesting though, this word Eucharist. It's a very interesting word. It's a Greek word made up of two other Greek words. There's two parts to this word. The first word is the Greek word you, which means good. The second word that makes up the word Eucharist is the word charis, which means gift. And it makes sense why the Eucharist would be the word that stirs and is translated as thanksgiving, because we do, after all, give thanks for good gifts that we receive. But it's interesting for us to think about Jesus' work as the good gift that he came to offer the world. You see, Jesus' death was the culmination and the completion of his work. Jesus' death was an embrace of the thorns and thistles. It involved an embrace and carrying of a cross. 
And through this embrace of the thorns and thistles and the cross that resulted because of his work, we see the love of God most fully in his death. The world can now find true life in him and be reconciled to God through Jesus because of his embrace of the difficulty of his work. There was a peace now that could transcend all understanding that was available to all who were broken and hurting in the world. And Jesus calls those who would follow him to pick up their crosses daily and follow him. I wondered for years, confession time, what the heck does that practically mean on a day-to-day basis to carry my cross? This morning, though, I want to suggest to you it means to embrace the aspects of your work that in so doing, we can then offer a good gift to the world. It's a strange paradox, work in a fallen and broken world. That is, Jesus fully embraces the difficulty of his work, the thorns and thistles, and in so doing, his work becomes the good gift that is given to redeem the world. The good gift of Jesus' redemptive work was accomplished through the caring and enduring of his cross, and the same is to be true for us who claim to follow in the way of Jesus. The good gift of our work will always require that we endure the cross that our work demands we carry in a fallen world. Think of the nurse that serves hurting and sick patients in unthinkable ways. I remember I I did an internship in a hospital and I would just kind of go and visit patients in the hospital. It was the first time that the reality of what nurses actually do to care for patients bathing them, cleaning them, assisting them, all of the messy things that you would think that we would be avoiding in our work. Think of the social worker who endures the low pay that they make working with some of the most broken and hurting people in our communities. They hear the stories of horrific after horrific report of the lives of actual people and the lives of actual children and they carry that around with them when they go home and when they're with their families and, and when it's the weekend and when they're not supposed to be thinking about it. They, they're carrying these stories, bird, this, these burdens with them wherever they go. Think of the teacher that supports their students not only with the supplies that they need because their families can't afford it, but with the emotional encouragement that they're not getting at home because they're in a single parent household. Think of the small business owner who tirelessly and stressfully keeps their business open in order to employ those who depend on them, whose families depend on them, and so they take on risk themselves. Think of the janitor who scrapes and cleans the restrooms of a commercial building the unspeakable messes that they clean up so the office buildings can run optimally. Think about the mom or dad who comes home after working all day and decides that we're gonna cook a home-cooked meal and sit around a table. And let me tell you, that's the last thing I wanna do when I come home, but I'm gonna do this as a service to my family so that we can be present to one another. Where in your work are the thorns and thistles? What is the cross that you must carry to do your work? You see, it is likely, if we trust the story that is told to us by the scriptures, that these are the places where the most redemptive elements of your work can be found. 
It is a great irony in the biblical narrative that Jesus doesn't avoid the brokenness of the world and instead embraces it in its most troubling forms and in so doing brings about the possibility for redemption for those he serves. If the work that we do will ever be a good gift to the world, we must embrace it with the thorns and thistles that come along with it. We must recognize that when we do the work we've been designed and created to do, we will always find ourselves carrying a cross on the journey, and it will be hard. We will often talk about the church as being the body of Christ. That is a way of something, that is a way of saying that, that by the grace of God, we become the physical hands, feet, and presence of Jesus in a hurting world. And we become the means through which God is revealing his love and forgiveness. We are the community that's pointing the way to discipleship. We're pointing to the way of Jesus so that those in our midst can discover the true and full life that is found in Jesus alone. But being the body of Christ has always and will always demand that we offer ourselves and our work as a good gift to the world And my encouragement to you this day is that you would respond in faithfulness to this call to embrace the difficult, monotonous, challenging tasks of your work for the sake of the world. And in so doing, you will discover that God is using those things to bring about his purposes. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, good work is a difficult thing in a fallen world. And yet in so many ways you have revealed to us that it's through the embrace of those difficult aspects and challenging and oftentimes discouraging elements of our work in which you do your greatest work. And so we ask God that you would utilize the totality of our work that you would utilize all of the vocations that we participate in, in our jobs, in our homes, in our community, as a way of revealing yourself and your love and your grace and your redemption to the world. And there is no way that we can do that fully without your grace that sustains and carries us. And so we ask God for the physical and emotional strength that we need from you to go about our work with faithfulness that we might see you move in new and surprising ways. We thank you, God, that we get to be your people and that you are our God. Amen.